What does your name mean? Have you ever looked it up? Have you ever known people who are really into this question or really into the things that names mean? For a brief window of time when I was very young, my mom got into cross-stitching. And when I was growing up, there were precisely two legacy pieces of her cross-stitch work um, from this little window of time when she was into it that became fixtures in my childhood bedroom. The first was a pillow with a little pocket on the front and a cross-stitched picture of the tooth fairy on it. It had a rhyme or a saying stitched into it too, but I can't remember what it was. And it always, this pillow always, always sat as a decoration on my childhood bed for as long as I could remember. And the second piece of her cross-stitching was this small framed pattern that was on the wall above my light switch. And it had my name on it, as well as my name's meaning. According to that cross-stitch anyways, my first name, Kenneth, means handsome. And my middle name, Michael, means gift of God. So, Kenneth Michael, handsome gift of God. It's pretty sweet, right? And I grew up with that right there in my bedroom over the light switch. This past week, as I was preparing for the sermon, I thought um, that it would be a good idea to finish the story and to look at my last name too. Who knows what it might mean, right? Kamesho. Maybe it means great beard or just really cool dude. Kamesho. I could add it to that cross stitch. Well, it turns out that Kamesho means disfigured. It's Portuguese in its origin, but the best guess of the name people is that it's rooted in this Gaelic word, cam, which means twisted. So, disfigured. Such a bummer. In any case, I'm starting with this question. What does your name mean? Because this week, as we get into the second story in our summer series, More Stories We Tell, we're looking at the story of Jacob in the Old Testament. And although, as we're going to discover, there are a multitude of things that we can say about Jacob's story in the Bible and dozens of possible sermons and applications to pull from his story, the approach we're going to take today focuses instead on his name, Jacob, which we're told in the Bible and and we're told by scholars of ancient Hebrew as a name that means grabber, thief, trickster, supplanter usurper. Or at least it means all those things until God changes it. So who is this grabber, this usurper, Jacob? The short answer is that he's one of the most significant figures in all of Israel's ancient history. He is the last of the three great patriarchs of the nation, the grandson of Abraham, with whom God made a covenant promising he would build a great people and use them to bless the whole world. And he's also the son of Isaac, who inherited that promise from God from his father. But very, very significantly, Jacob is not Isaac's oldest son. That would be his twin brother Esau, the rightful inheritor of God's promise and of Isaac's blessing. Although Jacob and Esau were twins, Esau was the first to be born, and he was born with Jacob's tiny baby hand clenching his ankle as he followed his brother into the world. This, of course, is the origin of Jacob's name. He's a grabber from the start, first of his brother's ankle, and then 
portentously of his brother's inheritance. The story in Genesis goes like this. Esau grows up to be a skilled hunter and an altogether strong man. He is his father's clear favorite. And Jacob is smaller and less hairy, and he never learns a trade. Instead, the Bible says that he prefers to stay around the tents with his mother, Rebekah. Jacob is, however, a pretty decent cook, and this is important as one day, exhausted and starving from a long hunt, Esau returns to the camp, and he is functionally hypnotized by this stew that Jacob is making. And he asks Jacob for a bowl of the stew before he goes in the tent to report on his outing to their father. And Jacob makes his brother this preposterous offer. He says he will give Esau a bowl of stew in exchange for Esau's birthright as the eldest son. Now Esau, who's famished and almost certainly sure that his brother isn't serious, jokingly agrees. But Jacob is serious. And that double portion of their father's wealth that's reserved for the oldest son, well, that becomes his. Jacob, grabber, right? Jacob, usurper. Now this begins the estrangement that the Bible records between Jacob and Esau, but it is not Jacob's greatest trick. That trick comes sometime later when their father, Isaac, is blinded and near death. And knowing that he's at the end, Isaac calls for his oldest son, Esau, so that he can pass on that blessing and that promise that God gave to him about the future of their people. The promise to be a great nation, the promise that that nation will go on to bless all the earth. But Isaac's wife, Rebekah, overhears his plans, and so she convinces Jacob, her favorite, to disguise himself as his brother Esau, even covering his arm in goatskins so that he'll seem hairy in order to deceive blind Isaac into passing the blessing on to the wrong son. And their scheme works. And it's Jacob who receives that blessing. Jacob, grabber. Jacob, usurper. Jacob, thief. But even more than that, and, and even more perplexingly than all that, also, Jacob, patriarch. Jacob, founding father of Israel. We've asked this question before, but let's add this ingredient to the stew that we're making here this morning too. Why are the Israelites telling this story? Why are the Israelites remembering their own heroes so unflatteringly? The next morning, Isaac dies, and it becomes clear that Esau, who is enraged, plans to kill his brother. And so Rebekah sends her youngest son to a distant land to live with her brother, a man, named, a man named Laban, until Esau's anger fades over time. So Jacob listens to his mother and he goes, Jacob, grabber, Jacob, coward. And it is in this moment, more than three chapters into his story in Genesis, 
that we see the very first sign of Jacob's personal spirituality or his personal faith in the God of his fathers whose blessing he's just stolen. And this first window into Jacob's spiritual life is, well, it's disappointingly transactional. He prays, if God will be with me and will watch over me on this journey I am taking and will give me food to eat and clothes to wear so that I return safely to my father's household, then the Lord will be my God and this stone that I have set up as a pillar will be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give you a tenth. Now, Here's one of these places where other sermons could just spin right out, right? We could talk for the rest of our time today about when we, like Jacob, have tried to make bargains with God. Bargains more often than not for our own prosperity, or at least for our lives to go the ways that we plan for them to go. But although I think we should mark that exit on the highway of Jacob's story, it's not the exit that we're going to take tonight. We need to keep driving. So what happens when Jacob arrives at the home of his uncle Laban? Well, what happens feels initially like Jacob's comeuppance. To make a long story short, Jacob falls in love with Laban's daughter, Rachel, and he agrees to work for Laban for seven years in order to earn the right to marry her. But on the wedding night, Jacob, the trickster, is deceived by his uncle, and he mistakenly marries Laban's oldest daughter, Leah. Furious about this, but powerless, Jacob makes a second deal. He will work seven more years and then marry Rachel too, which he does. But in the meantime, tensions arise with his father-in-law. Jacob is being a bit deceitful with the flocks, building a herd of his own on the side, and Laban is also trying to be deceitful with the flocks, making bogus deals with Jacob and then manipulating the terms of those deals, not to get too into the weeds, but after another six years, the two, Laban and Jacob, are on the verge of this actual kind of miniature war between their camps. And so Jacob, Rachel, and Leah flee Laban, and they try to return to the only other place they know to go, which is the land of Jacob's father. So here we have Jacob grabber, Jacob thief, Jacob trickster, and we certainly don't have Jacob faithful. We certainly don't have Jacob prayerful. This move, of course, is one that's going to bring Jacob back into the potential conflict that he's been avoiding with his first mark as a con man, his brother Esau. And in his absence, Esau has prospered, and Jacob hears sort of through the grapevine that Esau's anger towards him has not even in the least abated. And so, in Genesis 32, Jacob tries to kind of scheme his way out of trouble. So we read this, Jacob sent messengers ahead of him to his brother Esau in the land of Seir, the country of Edom. He instructed them, this is what you are to say to my lord Esau. Your servant Jacob says, I have been staying with Laban and have remained there till now. I have cattle and donkeys, sheep and goats, male and female servants. Now I am sending this message to my Lord that I may find favor in your eyes. When the messengers return to Jacob, he's floating a bit of a bribe is kind of how I read this. I don't know if that's the conventional take, but it seems like he's just pointing out, I have something that might appease you. 
And the messengers return to Jacob, and they say to him, We went to your brother Esau, and now he's coming to meet you. And 400 men are with him. So Jacob, of course, panics. And fearing that his entire clan that he's been building is going to get wiped out, he divides his camp, and he sends everybody away from him in the hope that Esau might not destroy all of them. And then, once Jacob is alone, and he's entirely out of his tricks, finally, in the story, Jacob prays with the whole of himself. And he says this, O God of my father Abraham, God of my father Isaac, Lord, you who said to me, go back to your country and your relatives, and I will make you prosper. I am unworthy of all the kindness and faithfulness you have shown your servant. I had only my staff when I crossed this Jordan, but now I have become two camps. Save me, I pray, from the hand of my brother Esau, for I am afraid he will come and attack me and also the mothers with their children. But you have said, I will surely make you prosper and will make your descendants like the sand of the sea, which cannot be counted. Let's be honest, this is still not the most humble prayer that we can imagine. There's that bit about, like, it's not just me that I'm praying for, but the women and the children, which I feel like is pretty cloying. But nonetheless, Jacob, grabber, trickster, usurper, can sense his defeat, which is what makes the next part of the story so strange. We read in the next verses, So Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him till daybreak. When the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. Then the man said, Let me go, for it is daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And the man asked him the big question of the day, right? What is your name? There's another cluster of exits here in the highway of this story. Who is the man? Who overpowers whom in the story? Why the hip? That seems curious. Why is daybreak so important? Are vampires involved? The exit most tempting to me is why does Jacob hang on and even threaten this being? But, like I said, we're here to talk about Names, and so we have to move on just a tiny bit further. Jacob, he answered. Grabber, trickster, thief, usurper. The Christian theologian Frederick Buchner famously wrote of this story that it's about, quote, the magnificent defeat of the human soul at the hands of God. The magnificent defeat of the human soul at the hands of God. We can see some of that, right? We can see the defeat of a body here, right? Jacob cannot overpower the man, the angel, and so he is permanently wounded here in his hip. 
But Buchner's not so much talking about that. He's interested in the soul defeat. And what is its symbol here? Well, for the first time in five chapters, Jacob has to say his own name. For the first time in five chapters, Jacob has to say his own name. He hangs on to God. He demands a blessing from God. And God says to him, tell me who you are. The grabber. The trickster. The thief. The liar. Say your name. And Jacob does. This is the exit in the story that we want to take. What happens what happens when we tell God who we really are? What happens when we tell God who we really are? Jacob, Kenneth Michael. There's a lot of fear in that, right? We've all been promised a lot. We're here in church tonight because somewhere, somehow in our lives, we have at least heard about a God who exists and who blesses those who submit to him. But the Jacob story, I think, reveals how complicated submitting can really be. Sometimes submission still looks like bargaining. Jacob is humbled enough after he steals his brother's blessing to know that he can't stay there and fight. There's humiliation in running away to his uncle's home, but even that, fear, isn't submission. He still only promises after that to serve God if God spares his life, and even more than that, if God makes him wealthy. When he's tricked by his father-in-law, he submits none of his plans to God, although he routinely tells Laban that the God of his forefathers will surely bless him when he stays with his father-in-law. But he doesn't follow that God in any discernible way in the story. He follows faith instead in his own cunning, which we see over and over. And even when this man, this angel, this emissary of his God literally wrestles with him, Jacob continues to be someone who does not submit. We can learn from Jacob's story, I think, because Jacob, because Jacob is us too. Losing sometimes, bargaining sometimes, trusting ourselves almost all of the time. Can all of that, all of that stuff, can sometimes just be this way of dancing around our God. That stuff isn't submission. Being defeated, trusting yourself, bargaining. It's not real submission. And why do we do all of that? I think we do all of that stuff because deep down we sometimes feel ashamed of what we've done and of who we really are. We've made mistakes. We've taken shortcuts. We're tricked our way into or out of something or other in our lives. There are parts of ourselves then that we're willing to let God see, but there are also things that we might know we can't keep hidden from him. Sure, technically I know he sees, but still things that I still don't want to speak aloud to him. So it matters, I think, that the act of submission God accepts here from Jacob. 
is Jacob's confession of his own name and all that that name means. That's the act of submission that God accepts. And what's amazing in the story then is that saying who he is and all that entails doesn't lead to God's judgment. It leads instead to his renaming. In 32, 38, it says this, Then the man said, Your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with humans and have overcome. Which is to say then that Jacob says who he is, and in response, God tells him who he will be. The name Israel is often translated, he who wrestles with God, but a better translation is actually God wrestles. That is, Israel just as much refers to the people God chooses to wrestle with as it does to Israel's own history of wrestling with God. Jacob wants a blessing. What God gives him is a new way of seeing himself. In fact, a way of seeing himself as God sees him as someone who is worth wrestling with, no matter his past. He's somebody worth fighting for, not because of what he has done, but specifically because God's not finished with him yet and the role that he's going to play in the story God is telling. In a moment, Fred Miller is going to come up and share a bit about how this story might lead to some practical challenges for us as people with whom God is also wrestling. So I'm going to conclude in this way. First, I want to say a few things that I think are true here in the story, which I hope will stick with us in the week ahead. And then second, I want to read a poem to you. Figures, right? It might as well be in my name. The true things first. First. God plans on broken people. God plans on broken people. There's so much trickery and confusion in the beginning of Jacob's story, but none of that trickery and confusion ever screws up God's plan of making Abraham's descendants a great nation, which will one day bless all the earth. You could imagine at a point where the wrong kid takes the blessing that that might mess up God's plan, but it doesn't. In fact, God seems to anticipate that whole mess and to even have plans for how all of that mess is going to serve what he is doing. And this, I think, tells us a ton about God. And it can also reassure us and give us confidence, I think, when God asks us for our own names, that our answers when he asks us that question do not disqualify us or mess up his plans. God is not waiting on people who are good enough for him to use them. God's plan is to reveal his own greatness by loving and perfecting the people that he uses. So that's the first thing. God plans on broken people. The second is this. God fights with broken people. God fights with broken people. He's going to fight with you at some point or another. And that means that not every tragedy in your life is a punishment, and it also means that not every blessing in your life is a reward. Sometimes prosperity is the worst thing that can happen to a person. It certainly does a lot of damage to Jacob, 
and feeds his arrogance. And sometimes suffering is a blessing, not always, not always, please know that, but sometimes. And the point, the point is that being defeated might be the beginning of seeing something that God is doing, maybe in you, maybe around you. But the defeat might be a critical part of it because God fights with broken people. He plans on broken people, and he fights with broken people. And the third thing, lastly, the postscript, right? In Genesis 33, Jacob faces his brother. I wasn't going to leave you without knowing how this all works out, right? Genesis 33, Jacob faces his brother, and before he can even say a word to his brother, Esau runs to meet him and embraces him. He throws his arms around his neck, and he kisses him, and the brothers weep. Jacob is forgiven. They return together to the land that God has blessed. And so this is the third thing, right? God fixes broken people. God fixes broken people. When he does this, when he does this work in particular, fixing broken people, it flashes like a supernova in the sky. And it is the single greatest sign of who he is and what his name means. The poem. I promised a poem. It's by Rainier Maria Rilke, and it's called The Man Watching, and I came across it to give attribution where it's due in a commentary on this passage I read by a woman named Sarah Koenig. And it concludes like this, the poem. How small that is with which we wrestle. What wrestles with us, how immense. Were we to let ourselves, the way things do, be conquered thus by the great storm, we would, we beco we would become far-reaching and nameless. What we triumph over is the small, and the success itself makes us petty. The eternal and unexampled will not be bent by us. Think of the angel who appeared to the wrestlers of the Old Testament. When his opponent's sinews in that contest stretch like steel, he feels them under his fingers as strings making deep melodies. Whomever this angel overcame, who so often declined the fight. He walks erect and justified and great from that hard hand which, as if sculpting, nestled around him. Winning does not tempt him. His growth is this, to be deeply defeated by the ever greater one be deeply defeated by the ever greater one.